Beloved, you know the drill. Open up your Bibles to uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 57. That's where we are tonight. And uh, I think we have about 10 more sermons left in Isaiah. Maybe, maybe nine. Nine or ten. Um, so, but, but we're getting to the home stretch. And we're looking at a text tonight that is going to speak to us. Um, and I think for a lot of us just reinforce much of what we already know but need to hear. Okay, so let's look at this text tonight. We're going to start in verse 14, Isaiah 57, verse 14, and let's stand together and we'll read the word of God together and then we'll dig into it. This is the word of the living God. Isaiah writes, starting in verse 14, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Lord, it is always um, a propitious time when we gather together as your people to express to you the worship of our souls. And to declare to you your greatness and to declare to you just your glory. To thank you for the redemption that you have accomplished through your son Jesus Christ. To give praise to you, Lord God, for the way that you have applied that redemption in our lives through the working of the Holy Spirit. To thank you for the very gift of faith by which we've been redeemed. I just, Lord, when we come before you and, and worship you, it's because, Lord, you have done everything to save us. And we have contributed nothing to that equation. Not anything that begins in us at all. The only thing that we bring is our rebellion and our sin and our hardness of heart that you dispel by your grace. How awesome that is. How amazing that is. Lord, I, I pray that your grace would never lose its grip on our hearts because we would be continually reminded that we have to do with the one who is the holy God of this universe, who is high and lifted up, who sits upon his throne unopposed, that once we were far off from you, and Lord God, we were dead in our sin, dead in our rebellion. And we would have remained just that way in fit objects of your eternal wrath had you not acted on our behalf, had you not moved to heal us. 
And so I pray, Lord God, that as we look at this text tonight, you would inflame our hearts yet again. That, Lord God, we would think about these things soberly and seriously. That, Father, these things that we encounter in this text, they wouldn't just be theological points that we believe. But, Father God, they would be astonishing truth that drives us as your people to earnest and sincere worship in every facet of our lives. Not merely coming before you corporately, but Lord, in every area of our lives. Make us worshipers in mind, in, in thought, in action, in emotion, in everything. So Lord, I pray that you'd grant me the unction of your spirit tonight and help me to teach these words faithfully and accurately that they would go forth, Lord God, as, a, as an arrow that would lodge in the hearts of your people. And Lord, that we receive your word with gladness tonight and be moved by it. We love you. We're grateful to you, Lord, for every good gift that we've received from your hands. We know we deserve none of them. It's entirely by your grace. We love you, Lord, because you loved us first. And thank you that you did. Because if you hadn't, Lord God, we would be forever lost. Bless, bless this time, Lord God, and glorify yourself in the teaching of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, beloved, a couple of weeks ago we were looking at these first eight verses, remember, of chapter 56, which, is, which was a text that speaks to how we are to live in, you know, the interim, how we're to live in the interim time. So for the believing remnant in Babylon, you'll remember that the, the interim time we're talking about is that time, you know, between the promise of God's servant, the Messiah, and then his, the coming of Christ, right? And then for us, as believers, it's the interim between Christ's first coming to accomplish our salvation and our redemption and, and inaugurating his, his kingdom in the hearts of men and his second coming when he will complete our salvation and judge his enemies and consummate his eternal reign, right? So when we were looking at Isaiah 56, there we were reading about, at least the first eight verses, there we were reading about the marks and the character of the faithful, right? How we are to live in the interim, what we're to look like, what our lives are to look like as in faith we look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw there also sort of the vast scope of God's grace, that God's grace is not a narrow thing, but it extends to people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, right? And then we also saw that the, the ultimate grand purpose of God is to gather to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ a great host of worshipers from every tribe and nation and tongue that will behold the glory of our triune God forever, right? Then last week when we were progressing in chapter 56, we got to verse 9 and went from verse 9 through chapter 57 and verse 13. And in those, those verses, we were confronted with the sobering reality that not all ethnic Israel is true Israel, right? That not everybody who is an Israelite is a true Israelite. Not every Israelite, just because they have Jewish blood, is saved. But only those who have been redeemed by the grace of God, right? And we saw how Similarly, not everybody who claims to be in Christ is actually in Christ, right? And, and so we, we talked about false teachers and unfaithful shepherds and apostates and hypocrites, all of which are a part of the visible church until Christ returns, right? And until he separates the sheep from the goats, which he will do, right? 
And in that text, Isaiah described for us sort of the character of unfaithful watchmen slash shepherds. And he talked to us about the, the consequences of their failed leadership. He described the madness of, of apostatizing from God, right? And, and then described the starkly different ends for all those who are truly God's people and those who are not, right? And he closed that section at the end of verse 13. If you want to just look back at it really quickly with these words, he says, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain, right? And so what happens in this text tonight is sort of a follow-on to the end of verse 13. In this text tonight, the Lord takes up this promise and explains how he brings it to fruition. Explains how he brings it to fruition, okay? How he does it. And it's a great text showing to us the sovereign grace of God in salvation, right? And I know that this is, in a lot of ways, this text is preaching to the choir, right? We're convinced of the sovereignty of God in salvation, right? Right? Okay, so I know in a lot of ways this is preaching to the choir. But this text is here for a reason. And it's here to elicit from us both our understanding and our worship. Are you with me? So let's look at this text. And I want you to see how it begins, first of all, with the removal of every obstruction from us coming to God. Look at what he says here in verse 14. We read there, And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Now there's a picture that Isaiah is using here, okay? There's a picture that he's describing here. And what he's describing for us is, is the, the creation of a highway. And in the ancient Near East, here's how you do it. You would create a highway by basically just mounding up the dirt that was around. You just, you know, mound up all the dirt that you could find into this big sort of, you know, long tubular sort of, not tubular, but like, yeah, I guess kind of tubular, sort of, you know, thing of dirt, and then you'd go up and you'd, you know, tamp down the top and you'd remove all the obstructions and there you had a road, right? That was the whole thing. That's how you made a highway. And here the picture is a highway into God's presence, a highway to reconciliation with him, the removal of every obstruction that you can imagine, literally every stumbling block. That's what that word means. So you've got this highway that's created and the removal of every stumbling block so that God's people can come to him. And, and, and the idea is removing everything that would be a hindrance to the redemption and the restoration of the Lord's people must be removed. Now here's a couple of things to consider, okay? What we know from scripture. Number one, who must be the creator of this highway? Who must be the creator of this highway? The Lord. He has to, Right? We don't have the construction degree in order to do this, right? We, there's no way that we can make a pathway to the Lord. We have no ability to do that, right? As sinners, as fallen beings, there's no way that we can, can orchestrate a way into the presence of God. But then the second thing is, there's a specific mention of obstruction here, a specific mention of a stumbling block. And so the question, of course, is, what's the stumbling block? What, 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 is, what are the chief obstructions here? And the answer to that question, beloved, is our great sinfulness and God's holiness. Right? The answer to that is our great sinfulness and God's holiness. Now, here's the deal. God is unchangeably, immutably holy, right? God's character cannot change in any way, right? 
There's no way that God can stop being God. So there's no way to remove holiness from the equation. So what's that leave us? Well, the only way that this obstruction can be removed is by dealing with the guilt and the corruption of our sin. And that's exactly what God has done in his servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's the whole point of Isaiah 53. In fact, the work of the servant looms large over this entire passage, okay? The work of the servant is essential to everything that we read in this text. It is only because God has dealt with our sin in Christ that we can have any hope of approaching the holy God on this highway. You with me? It's only because of what God does that anybody's saved. And the Lord describes all that he's done in a divine soliloquy that extends from verse 15 to verse 20. And in a lot of ways, it sounds like, you know, when God promises the new covenant in Jeremiah. The I wills, right? Look first with me at verse 15. In fact, verse 15 is probably one of the most remarkable theological lessons ever packed into one verse. Look at this with me. Look what he says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I want, you first, I want us to first notice the descriptions of the Lord here in this text. I want us to see the way the Lord is described here. First of all, he's described as high and lifted up, right? High and lifted. We need to get a greater sense of who God is, right? In his essence, we need to get a greater sense of who God is, okay? He describes himself, he's described here in the word of God as high and lifted up. That is exalted, highly exalted, magnified above all others, glorified, supreme in stature above everyone else. We're not on God's level. We're not even remotely close. We're not in the same heavenly zip code, man. We're not close. He inhabits eternity. That means he dwells in eternity. That means he is outside of time and space. He's outside of time and space. He's got no beginning and no end. He's the one this, this one who inhabits eternity with whom everybody must do and all must give an account. He is, he is greater than eternity. His name is holy. Whenever you see something like that, his name is this or his name is that, the idea is this is his essential quality. This is who he is. He's holy. That is, in his essence, he is separate from his creation. He is a cut above, a cut beyond, a cut apart from us. His character, it's not like any creature he's made. Although creation depends upon him, he depends on nothing. 
He's distinctly different than, than the realm that he has created. And consequently, he cannot be approached by any of his creatures, listen now, unless he wills it and condescends to make himself known in some way that is comprehensible to them. I'm going to say that one more time. He cannot be approached by any of his creatures unless he wills it and condescends to make himself known in some way that is comprehensible to them. But more than that, in light of the fall, this word holy describes God as separate from human infirmity and impurity and sin. It expresses divine separation from everything that pollutes and degrades It speaks of the immaculate ethical purity of the God who is absolutely opposed to sin, who is absolutely opposed to evil, who does not wink at any of its manifestations. The ethical purity of God is such that his righteousness, he is righteous in a way that we cannot even begin to imagine. A.W. Tozer captured this very well. He captured this very well. He said this. He said, We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power. He may admire God's wisdom. But his holiness, he cannot even imagine. That's how glorious God is. How much time have you spent lately meditating on his holiness? Meditating on his infinite majesty as God. Charles Spurgeon said, there's, there's nothing more needful for the human soul than to quiet itself and meditate on the majesty of the Almighty. And he's right. In his holiness, God is transcendent. He dwells in the high and the holy place, in his manifest presence and glory on the throne of the universe. He is a transcendent God. But you know what? Praise God, that's not all he is. He's also imminent. He's a God who makes himself known to his people. He dwells with his people whom he loves and whom he has chosen. He dwells with those of a contrite and a lowly spirit. What's that mean? It means this. It means that God dwells with those who are crushed by the weight and the guilt of their sin before his holiness. It means that He dwells with those that are humbled to the dust before him. Those who mourn over their sin. He dwells with those who are chastened and abased by the worthlessness and the foolishness of their rebellion against him. Who have ceased to defend themselves or make excuses before him. Who turn their faces to to him in earnest and humble confession of their sin and of their need for forgiveness with God. God dwells with them. God dwells and makes himself known to them in order to revive their spirits and revive their hearts. God draws near 
to those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, right? For they will be comforted. Comforted by God. And in the way that God alone can do. He comes and he revives. That means to give new being to someone. I want you to hear me when I say it means to give new being to someone. It means to replace the old being and give you a new life. It means to, to, to give you, uh, to keep, make you alive and keep you alive, to quicken what was dead, to renew and restore life and to preserve, you know, your life alive forever. That's the idea. It's to make you a new creature. God draws near to revive and give life to those who are his. And, and in, chiefly so in the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God that he does. Praise God that he does that. The Lord says in verse 16, look at it. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. That's great news, isn't it? If God were to contend, if God were to bring suit, if God were to, you know, identify every iniquity, if he were to contend with sinners forever and continue in his everlasting anger and wrath towards us, no one could survive it. That's what he's saying here. Nobody would be saved. Well, how, how can God, how does God draw near and dwell with the contrite and the lowly? How does he do that? Because here's the thing. When you look at verse 17, when the Lord describes the hardness and the stubbornness and the depravity of the fallen human character, it's not very encouraging, is it? Is it? I mean, look at verse 17. He says of us, of, of fallen humanity, he says, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Now think about that for a moment, okay? Think about what God is saying here. Man sinned, I chastened him. I, you know, turned my face away from him. I was angry with him. I disciplined him, and it didn't do any good. He just continued on in his sin. In fact, that phrase, the iniquity of his unjust gain, you know what that describes? That describes covetousness. In fact, in the authorized version, in the King James, I think it says, anybody got a King James? Doesn't it say covetousness there? I don't know if it does or not, but I think it does. I'm pretty sure it does. And there's a reason. It's because this idea of unjust gain is the idea of the idolatry of self. That's what's being spoken of here, the idolatry of self. The incessant pursuit of self-interest of personal exaltation at the expense of everyone else without any regard for the law of God. That proud and unbridled self that wishes to make the universe center on itself and to draw all things inward to itself, to evaluate everything in terms of self, to turn every experience to self, to turn every conversation to self, to turn everything in every way to self. Confident of this, that if I can amass enough, if I can just amass enough, you know, of whatever I desire, whether it's power or comfort or security or position or influence or just plain old attention, if I can do that, I'll somehow find life. It is the biggest lie going. The idolatry of self, beloved, is at the very heart of human iniquity. It's idolatry and it's the rejection of God, right? And God says because of that, in fact, there are, there are some commentators, we won't do it tonight, but there are some commentators that equate this text to Genesis 
uh, chapter 6 and starting in verse, you know, verses 5 through 7 where it describes the just, well, let's look at it. Look at Genesis real quick. Well, I'll just read it to you. In Genesis chapter 6, this is the description of humanity before the flood, right? It says, starting in uh, verse 5 of chapter 6, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Because of our iniquity, because of our iniquity, God removed his favor. He hid his face. He brought his discipline and judgment upon humanity in various ways, right? But rather than turning from his iniquity, man plunged further and further into sin, further and further away from the Lord. Divine punishment cannot change the fallen nature. Do you understand? Divine punishment can't change. If that were the case, then hell would eventually be empty. Divine punishment can't change the fallen nature. Something greater is needed, and that something, beloved, is grace. A decisive work of grace. Hence the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, pictured, by the way, in the ark. Now, I want to make sure we understand this. I want to make sure we get what's being said here. It's not like God was trying to figure out how to deal with us through divine trial and error. Okay? You know, like what you do when you're a parent, right? It's not that he was exasperated and then finally hit on a winning strategy. That's not it. That's not the idea here at all. In fact, God's grace is evident at the moment of the fall, isn't it? In the way in which he deals with Adam and Eve. Isn't that true? And then, you know... If, if you look at Genesis 3.15, where the Lord says to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's grace is evident from the beginning. Peter tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ, he says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 21, that the Lord Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was foreloved, forechosen by God to, for his mission of redemption before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. So God's gracious plan before the foundation of the world was to send his son, the servant of Isaiah 53, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins, right? To accomplish our salvation, to give to us, to be the conduit of a new heart and a new life and new ears to hear and new eyes to see and to make us the people of God who love him and love his word and who love to honor and obey him. We know that. We know that to be true. So what's being said here? The point being made here, beloved, is this is that because of our radical depravity, because of the depravity that affects our mind and our emotions and our will and everything about us, our reasoning capacity, everything about us, because of our depravity, because of our sinful and fallen condition, we were hopeless in ourselves and helpless to change. We only get worse. We only get worse. Even the law, holy and good as it is, cannot change us or transform our condition. Only God can. Only God can. 
He must act if any of us is to be rescued and redeemed. We need grace. In fact, I love what Charles Spurgeon says about this. This is so good. This is for the people who think they don't need much grace. Listen to what he says. If you're ever saved, it must be by an act of undeserved favor on God's part. I don't care who you are. You are guilty. And if you escape execution, a free pardon will have to be given to you by the great king for reasons found in him alone. For there is nothing in you that can constitute a claim for mercy. You may never have physically fallen into adultery or murderer, nor even have committed theft or false witness, although you probably have. But the same grace is needed to save you as to save an adulteress or a murderer. You have no merit to plead. You have no merit to plead, nor any claim upon God. Such claims as you had as a creature, you have forfeited, and you have done nothing to create any other. You have committed treason against God, and you are already condemned by his unquestionable justice. If you shall ever be saved, it must be by a high act of the Lord of mercy, passed in his infinite sovereignty, and not because of anything in you to deserve it, but because he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. Thank you, Charles Spurgeon. The holy God's got to be the actor in our redemption. And praise God he is. Look at verses 18 and 19. It's a declaration of what God will do for his people. And the sense here is not that God grudgingly does this. This is not this. God delights in this. Right? God delights in this. Look at verses 18 and 19. He says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him. And restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. What a great heart. I mean, I know God doesn't have a heart like we have a heart, but you know, but what a great, what a great heart in the Lord. Notice this. I, I want you to notice this. God knows all about us, he says, right? I have seen his ways. You know what that means? This is, that's an interesting one. It's not just like he observed them from far off. Like when you're watching a football game because you're not in good enough shape to actually play the game. And so you sit in the stands and watch it from afar. It's this. It's that he has seen and he has examined and he has perceived everything about us. He knows with thorough precision who and what we are in our sins, and nothing's hidden to him. And no one fools him. He sees through to our hearts, and he knows our condition and our fallen state to be, as Paul describes it in Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God sees it all. He sees it all. 
but for the sake of his remnant. God says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will heal him. That's good news, isn't it? I mean, that's gospel right there. It's the best news ever for the contrite and the lowly. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. God says, in essence, I will do for him what he cannot do for himself. That word heal means I will mend him. I will repair him. I will restore him to soundness. I will restore him to favor with me. I will do for him what he desperately needs that he cannot do for himself. I'll do it. I'll lead him. That is, God will shepherd and guide us. He will turn us and lead us in the way of righteousness for his name's sake, right? The Lord promises, I will restore comfort to him and his mourners. In other words, he will make his people complete and sound in mind and in, and in soul. He'll restore comfort. He'll restore contentment and joy and well-being that sin and rebellion have stolen from our souls. He will give that to those who mourn over their sin and those who mourn over the sin in this world. He will bind up our brokenness. He will make us to be a new creature. He will give to us a new heart and a new longing for righteousness, a longing for God, a longing for his word, a longing to please him, a delight in his fellowship. God does all of that for us. When we deserve none of it. And then comes this, this strange statement. God will do all of this, he says, by creating the fruit of the lips. Creating the fruit of the lips. What does that mean? That's a very interesting statement. And you know what it speaks to? The sovereignty of God in salvation and changing our hearts. He talks to us about what he will do with us, in us. He creates in us the fruit of the lips. What is that? Well, the fruit of the lips, beloved, is the contrite and lowly confession of sin and repentance before the Lord. It's the confession that God is holy and just, but he is also the God of grace who gives healing and praise God, he is our God. It is the fruit of 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 the lips that confess saving faith and trust in the Lord that spring forth now with praise and with worship, with a testimony of God's greatness and his goodness and his glory. It's the evidence, the fruit of the lips is the evidence of a changed heart. That's the idea here in Isaiah. It's like what the Lord Jesus Christ said, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. The fruit of the lips is a picture and an expression of the human response to all that God has done, to all that God has worked in Christ, and all that he has worked in our soul for our eternal redemption. And all of it is a work of the Lord accomplished by his purpose and his might in us by virtue of the saving work of the servant for the remnant chosen of God. God acts in grace. God acts in grace to save. Salvation's all of grace everywhere and in every place in Scripture. Do you understand? 
Like when you look in the Old Testament and you see people being saved, they're being saved by grace through faith in the coming servant. Do they know everything about him? No. Is there more to be revealed along the way? Absolutely. But you know what? They believe in the promise of the Lord. They trust him. And they're saved on the basis of that one who is to come and do everything that God promises. And in the New Testament, we're saved, right, by grace through faith in the Christ who has come and accomplished our salvation. But in either case, salvation is all of grace because of Christ, because of God in Christ, because of God through Christ. Think about it. And so I would read in Ephesians, for instance. And if, turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 real quickly. Ephesians chapter 1 and chapter 2 in the New Testament. Now, I won't say they're my They are some of the most compelling two chapters in all of Scripture for me. They really are. Because I know what it is to be plucked out of utter spiritual darkness. Look what he says when he describes here, verse 4, that the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. And then you jump over to, uh, to Ephesians 2. Where he says of us, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. When did he love us with that? Before the foundation of the world. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. And for by grace, jump down to verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. Beloved, the eternal glories of salvation are the same in the Old Testament and the New. Do you see that? Do you see that? Because of God's grace to his chosen remnant. And because he's chosen us for salvation. We read this divine proclamation. Peace, peace. To the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. God announces peace to the far and to the near. To Jews and Gentiles who are numbered among his people. Chosen by his grace. Real peace. Because God's not like the false prophets of Jeremiah's day of whom God said, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. God did not heal the wound of, our, of his people lightly. He did not. He announces peace for all who repent and believe because the promised servant was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That is not... That is not a light, cheap healing. You with me? I like the way Peter puts it, man. He says, He himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. There's peace for God's people. And not one purchased at a light price. We are healed. And all that that includes by the wounds of Christ. There's peace for God's people, but there is no peace for the wicked. And that's how this closes. And this section ends on a very sobering note. Look what he says here in verses 20 through 21. He says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. In other words, those who continue to be hardened, those who continue to be arrogant and proud and sensual, the unrighteous who refuse to humble themselves before the Lord, there is no peace for them. They just continue on in their wretchedness. They reject God's salvation because they refuse to be humble and contrite, to be lowly. They can't stop excusing themselves long enough to see what they are and what desperate need they're in. They reject the Lord and they resemble the roaring sea that can't be stilled and that tosses up slime and filth. It's not just that they fail to obtain peace, but this metaphor suggests that they progressively bring to light more sin and more uncleanness. That they're increasingly marked by open rebellion and irreverence, by immorality, by deceptiveness and sneakiness, by shameful deeds. Their lives are always turbulent and, and unsettled, never comforted. Because they refuse to consider the high and the holy God. They won't weep over their sin. They're not contrite. They don't view themselves as lowly. They have no humility. They have no godly sorrow for their sins, but only a spirit of defiance. And they bear with that spirit of defiance until ultimately they meet their eternal fate. There is no peace for the wicked. None at all. In fact, can I tell you, there's no peace to be found anywhere, not temporally and not eternally. I know people who reject Christ. Many of them claim to be at peace. They're not. They're not. That's why they are on this never-ending quest for that next thing that will satisfy them. They're not at peace. The peace belongs to the people of God. The recipients of the I wills. The God who says, I will heal. I just want to offer some closing thoughts. You know, God speaks in this text saying, I will, right? I will. I'll do all this. And what that says is that we're unable, but God is able, right? Because only God can say, I will, with certainty and irresistible purpose. Isn't that true? We can say, I will. But that doesn't mean a whole lot. God is the only one that can say with certainty and irresistible purpose, I will, because our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. 
And it pleases him to save a people for himself. It pleases him to rescue a people that have made themselves helpless and hopeless. And that ought to give great comfort to our hearts, beloved, and it ought to inform the whole of our lives. How so? Let me just give you a few thoughts. No particular order, I guess. Well, maybe a little bit. I don't know. But I think this text ought to cause us to be humbled and overawed at the sovereign authority and the wisdom and the power of the grace of God, shouldn't it? Like we ought to be moved to rejoice in our salvation for the way that God has seen us as we were and then rather than destroying us, healed us. The way that he restored our souls and created that fruit upon our lips, the expression of our hearts to receive Christ as Lord. We ought to read this text and it ought to lead us to reject the spirit of this age, really of every age, that diminishes the full character of God, that magnifies fallen man and gives strength and, and, and you know, gives some kind of glory to man that he certainly doesn't deserve and tramples the grace of our God in Jesus Christ. It ought to cause us, when we see ourselves in this text, it ought to cause us to, to love the Lord with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to desire to live in a way that we please Him and worship Him, that, that, that with the whole of our lives we bring glory to Him because that's why we've been saved. It ought to lead us to pray for the salvation of lost souls. We don't know who God might save, but here's what we do know. If God can save us, if he can heal us, he can heal them. Amen? And then last, let us be comforted that no matter what may come, right, whatever may we may face, right? I mean, I don't even like reading the news anymore, you know? But whatever we might deal with individually or corporately, Here's the good news. If we're truly in Christ, the state of our souls is not in doubt. And so we've got nobody to fear in this world. We're not to fear man. What's the worst that he could do? Kill you? Oh, Jesus said, fear the one who can both kill and destroy your soul. Right? Let us instead fear the Lord. Not in craven fear, that's not the point. But in awe and in reverence of the glorious God that no fallen sinner could possibly manufacture. The God who is. The high and the holy one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, who dwells in the high and holy place, but also with him, who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we constantly need to be reminded
of your sovereign hand and mastery over all of creation, over all that takes place in this earth, and over the hearts and the souls of men and women. To be reminded that it's because of your sovereign power and might and your loving grace and kindness that, Father, we are not condemned. But that you, in eternity, devised the perfect plan by which you would redeem and reconcile sinners like us to you and give us peace. Our salvation is entirely of you. And we ought to be of most people, of all people, most glad. Thank you, Father God, that you saw fit to heal us. That you saw fit to lead us in the way of righteousness. That, Lord God, you saw fit to restore us and revive us and make us alive together in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that that you have been so incredibly gracious to us. And you demonstrate it every single day. I pray, Lord, now that we would approach you in prayer with humble hearts. That we would draw near to you, Lord God, in humility with a contrite and lowly spirit. That we come before you glad to be received because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grateful that we stand in grace and no longer under condemnation. Let us pray and seek your face and express our hearts of gratitude and love to you. Let us pray and seek your face and ask of you things that only you can do. Let us pray and seek your face and trust that everything that we pray in accordance with your will, Lord God, is yes and amen. And thank you for this word tonight that I know I needed to hear. And I trust, Lord God, that everyone here needed to hear as well. We love you and we bless you. We praise you and thank you for every good gift that you have given to us. May you be exalted amongst your people now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.